Thanks, Raj. Well, Zephaniah 3, it's right up there amongst the list of well-known prophecies, isn't it? It's uh, people's favourite text. Not really. Um, How do I find myself preaching on what is probably one of the more obscure bits of Old Testament prophecy tonight? It's a passage towards which I, I feel I've clearly been led and one which I feel I have a responsibility to share with you tonight. How did that leading take place? Towards the end of last year, my programme of Bible reading uh, brought me to Zephaniah, and the promise of restoration was one which resonated with me as I was considering what God might want to say to us in 2018. Round about the same time, for reasons I can't pin down now, I stumbled across this passage again, and once more its potential relevance struck me. It made enough of an impression on me to prompt me into making this passage part of our Deacon's Away Day at the beginning of this year. And out of that came the decision to share it with the wider church as part of the prayer and consultation morning we held in early February. Was it a word of God for us for 2018? Then the passage dropped off my radar a bit until Raj asked me a few weeks ago, well in advance of tonight, what I thought I might be preaching on in this evening's service. Thank you, Raj. With Easter fast approaching, I really didn't have a clue and had no inspiration whatsoever. I looked at the passages set in the lectionary for today and didn't spot anything at all that seemed to be relevant. In the course of our email exchanges, I went back and looked at the lectionary readings again for today, and there, first on the list, mysteriously, was Zephaniah chapter 3. I don't know how I missed it the first time round. It was in brackets, maybe that's how. Um, but they like, leapt off the page at me at a time when I was pondering what I should share with you tonight. So I feel kind of under an obligation to preach on it, particularly as it keeps coming back into my mind. Zephaniah, like most of the prophets, specialised in doom and gloom. He exercised his ministry during the reign of good King Josiah, And people speculate whether he said his piece early on in Josiah's reign, before the king started his wide-ranging program of reform, or whether Zephaniah's ministry came later as a way of passing an uncharitable verdict on uh, Josiah's attempt to turn the tide, saying it was just all too little, too late. Whatever the case, these closing verses of reassurance mean that the book ends on a positive note rather than just leaving a bad taste in the mouth of its readers. The message is one of restoration. Interestingly, that was the message this morning that came to us from our tear fund speaker. And boy, did the kingdom of Judah need restoration at that point in time, because it's apparent, reading Zephaniah, that they were in a bit of a mess. They were under God's judgment and were suffering oppression at the hands of their enemies. In their eyes, the oppression was a sign of God's displeasure with them. They were afraid of what future evil might waylay them, lurking unseen just around the corner. Their hands were hanging limply at their sides and they felt like giving up, just lying down by the side of the road because they were too exhausted to go on. They were demoralised and fretful and grieving because they felt they were living under God's reproach. They were limping along. They felt rejected and the assessment of their situation brought them nothing but shame. There was nothing to celebrate. It was a pretty grim place where they found themselves. And there was a sense in which you need to look into that abyss in which they felt they were in order to appreciate the significance of the promise of restoration. 
Otherwise, the positive things that Zephaniah brings to them just sound a little bit glib and superficial. Looking at the issues that clearly were overwhelming them a bit prompts the question, if we were to turn up in God's surgery for a spiritual health checkup, and he asked you how you were doing as an individual, or how we were doing as a church, what answer would you give? I can't answer on your behalf, of course. Patient confidentiality means I don't have access to your spiritual records. So whatever God knows about your condition is a matter entirely between you and him. But if you were to ask, how are you doing at Brighton Road? I'd probably have to say, hand on heart, well, we, we, we have done better. Those of you who know the church will know that last year was a difficult one for us. And we are still in the early stages of recovery from that. And we're not yet in robust health. In the eight years that I've been here, we've all aged eight years, surprisingly enough. But for some of us, those eight years have had a a more negative effect than others. We feel their passing quite acutely. And some of us are physically and emotionally drained. And as well, perhaps it would be true to say that we've lost a certain amount of confidence. Now that can be a good thing, because there's no virtue in complacency. But actually there's a feeling of vulnerability, and that can be difficult to cope with. How do we get here? The Nigerian author Ben Okri said, to poison a nation... You poison its stories. A demoralised nation tells demoralised stories to itself. And to some extent, that's where we find ourselves. Some damaging narratives about Brighton Road have been aired over the past year or so that are simply untrue, and people have been shaken by what they've heard. Negativity breeds and feeds off itself. I took the time the other night to read Sir Cliff Richard's statement in his court case against the BBC for invading his privacy when they broadcast footage of the police searching his home. What he's been through is off the scale. But one of the things he said struck me, and that was how once the finger of suspicion had been pointed in his direction, all kinds of false accusations and rumours started doing the rounds. And that's because when truth is eroded, rumours have a field day. Now, to some extent, that's happened here. More than one person has said to me, I thought I knew Brighton Road and I can't believe what I've been told. My response is to say that knowing Brighton Road as you do, you probably shouldn't believe all that you've been told. Love calls us to be prepared to trust, to give people the benefit of the doubt, and to be steadfast. But even so, even without the rumours, our story doesn't make easy reading over the past ten years or so. Before my time, you finally moved into these buildings, 2008 or thereabouts. And that was the culmination of years of dedicated sacrificial work and giving. But any sense of having arrived in the promised land was vitiated by the tragic deaths of David, my predecessor, and Chris, your church secretary. And if there were ever any illusions that people would flock to a new building and find Christ in their hundreds as they did so... Those ideas have been dispelled in face of the reality that partly as a result of a couple of staff appointments which didn't work out, we've lost more people than we've gained in recent years. There is a feeling that we're in danger of shrinking. And believe me, no one feels that more acutely than I do. So why do I I rehearse all of this? It's certainly not because I want to make everyone feel worse. 
But you can't think about restoration without an honest and thorough assessment of where you're at. Otherwise, you're operating in cloud cuckoo land, and that's not where God is to be found. Zephaniah was writing to the people at a time when they felt pretty rubbish. And if on dark days that's how you feel as well, then maybe his message of hope is for you. Because there is a fundamental truth that is the key to Zephaniah's message, and it's so important, he actually says it twice. It's there in verse 15. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And the same thing is said in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. The most important thing to realise and take to heart is that God is here. God is in our midst. And that is the truth he calls us to believe and embrace. The Lord is with you and he is mighty to save. However we may feel, that is the ultimate reality which changes everything. Think of those first disciples in the aftermath of Jesus' death. Even after his resurrection, they were still small in number and demoralised. What changed them? It was the presence of the Lord in their midst by his Spirit. That's why worship is crucial to the life and well-being of our church, because it's as we focus on the Lord in our worship that we become aware of his presence in our midst. And whatever you make of the past, whatever you might construe of the future, the reality here and now is that God is with us in our midst. In our midst. Not on the periphery, not keeping his distance, not heading out of the door, but right here among us. I've started using the Aramis website for my daily prayers, and yesterday's prayer uh, was this, Almighty Father, who in your great mercy gladdened the disciples with the sight of the risen Lord. Give us such knowledge of his presence with us that we may be strengthened and sustained by his risen life to serve you continuously in righteousness and truth. Amen. And the Lord is in our midst because he's glad to be here because he delights in you, his people. He's here because he loves us. And so, at 6.30 on a Sunday evening, this is where God chooses to be. He rejoices with gladness in his heart when we come to meet him here. He exults over us with loud singing. We're used to the idea that we sing songs to praise God, but Zephaniah sees God singing songs of delight in his heart because of the joy of being with his people and being present among them. And the Lord wants to quieten our hearts with his love, as you would a fretful child, to hold us close to his heart and give us the assurance that it's going to be okay because he loves us. And who is this God who's in our midst? He is the King of Israel. He is our Lord and Master, the boss, the one in charge. That's good news because he knows exactly where we're at and knows exactly what needs to be done. So we don't need to be scared about what to do or how to do it. And because the Lord, the King of Israel, is in our midst, we don't need to be afraid of evil.
And the Lord our God in our midst is the one who is mighty to save. If we need rescuing, he's the one who can do that. And he's right here with us. There's no need to call any other emergency service. The Lord your God is here on hand and he's mighty to save. At the same time, there's a challenge there because the God who's in our midst is in the business of saving people. That is clearly at the top of his agenda. And if it's on his agenda, it needs to be on ours as well. People coming to Christ and finding faith because that is God's agenda and purpose. And you sense God's heart in that prophecy from Zechariah. He just wants to gather us all into his presence, those who are mourning, those who feel as if they're in disgrace, those who are suffering oppression, those who are just about limping or hobbling along, those who feel worthless or rejected, those who struggle with self-acceptance. The Lord wants to bring us all together so that he can restore us and change the narrative from being one of failure, insecurity and fear to one of confidence, based not on feelings which fluctuate wildly over time, but on the reality of God's presence with us in our midst. And if God does embark on a programme of restoration with us, what would that look like? What did it look like for Zephaniah's original audience? And the answer to both questions is, we don't know. So if you were to ask me what the next five years at Brighton Road looked like, I'd be very reticent to give any kind of detailed reply. I'm acutely conscious, as I always am speaking in front of you, that I'm accountable to God for what I say, and that cuts in two directions. We all love to hear that restoration is coming. But in 30 plus years of ministry, I have heard so many empty predictions of a glorious future just around the corner that have come to nothing that I have no desire to jump on that particular bandwagon. And yet at the same time, the fact that I've been led repeatedly to this passage just suggests it could be a word from the Lord for us. And so I feel under a sense of compulsion to bring it to you and share it with you and invite you to reflect on it, to pray about it, to test it, to assess it. What is clear is that without God's intervention, without change, the long-term prospect for Brighton Road is one of decline. I don't want to see that happen, and I don't believe God does either. So if we feel that God has something to say to us through this passage, we need to take it to heart and pull our socks up and get on board with what he intends to do so that we don't end up missing the boat. We need to be expectant and ready. Because if this is God's word to Brighton Road in 2018, then there are promises here to take to heart. He will quieten our hearts so that we don't need to beat ourselves up over the past or be anxious for the future. The passage suggests that he will gather in those who've been scattered and restore our fortunes. And that brings a challenge to strengthen our hands and be ready to move into action. It's a very sketchy picture. How much faith do we have to fill in the blanks? 
But for now, he calls us to let go of our fears, to renew our commitment, to sing and shout and rejoice and exult. Well, why, you might ask, God hasn't done anything yet. Well, no, we sing and shout and rejoice and exult because the Lord, the God of Israel, who is mighty to save, is in our midst. Whatever lies in our past, there is no condemnation because his son died on the cross to deal with all of our rubbish. And he is now present among us as risen Lord. And because that is true, the words of Isaiah 12, the shortest chapter in Isaiah, those words are true for us as well. And we can say with Isaiah, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel.